0: I was just looking at this tremendous crowd and thinking of about almost exactly 40 years ago, I had my first and really only real date with Jim Elliott, and it was here at Moody Bible Institute. We were students at Wheaton College, and he had asked me for a date to go to a game or something in the fall. And I had accepted and then discovered that there was going to be a Bible study that same night. And I told Jim that I'd really rather go to the Bible study, so I was breaking the date. He said, well, you don't need to break the date. We could go to the Bible study together. And I said, no, that would be too distracting. (laughs) So everybody in the dormitory thought I was really out of my tree because Jim Elliott was a very desirable young man who never asked anybody for a date. I seemed to be the first person he had ever thought of asking. So I blew my one and only chance, I thought, and then at the end of April, I think it was in 1948, he told me that there was a missionary conference at Moody Church, and he would like me to go to that to hear one of the daughters of the very famous missionary to Africa, C.T. Studd. So I was thinking of that and how long ago that was, and yet only yesterday, and how little I could have imagined that I would be speaking to a group of people like this, and I probably would not be here today if it weren't for having married that man named Jim Elliott five and a half years after that memorable date. Before I begin my talk, actually, I'd like to mention a little booklet which my husband will have at a special table. It's not going to be at the regular book table with the Moody bookstore. It's the Little Red Booklet. If you can remember the title, it is Sex is a Lot More Than Fun. But if you can't remember the title, just say the Red Booklet. (laughs) Sex is a Lot More Than Fun. It is for children between the ages of 11 and 16. How many here know and love somebody in that age bracket? Three or four of you kids between 11 and 16 I think are in a crucial age, especially in these days in which we live, and it was my hope and desire to be able to write a little booklet which would help them to see that there are some very good reasons for preserving that priceless gift which you can only give once, the gift of virginity. I do want to mention a little bit about my latest book, which Joe explained is not available, but you can order it. It's called A Chance to Die, and I was thrilled when I was given the opportunity to write that book because it is about a woman who provided for me throughout most of my life. I came upon her writings when I was 14. She provided for me what... Nowadays, people would call a role model, but for me, she was much more than that. She was really a spiritual mother. Her name was Amy Carmichael. She was a missionary from Ireland to India, where she spent 53 years without a furlough. She was given an amazing work for children, little girls who had been rescued from temple prostitution, and little boys rescued from homosexual practices connected also with the dramatic societies of the Hindu temples. And she became the mother of literally hundreds, probably thousands, of Indian children. Her, one of her favorite sayings was, if anything cuts across your own will, your tastes and preferences, see in that thing a chance to die. In other words, a chance to say no to yourself, to give up the right to yourself, and that's the reason for that title, A Chance to Die. Her life has affected mine in ways beyond description, and I would hope that some of you will be introduced to that same power through that biography. As you know from your brochures, the theme of today's talks is A Woman's Offering, Anybody here ever gotten a gift that you didn't know what in the world to do with? When you got that gift, what was your responsibility to the giver? Well, it was to smile sweetly and to say thank you very much, wasn't it? I can remember my mother giving a very special picture that she loved, a beautiful painting to a dear friend of hers, And the friend's response was, I don't know where in the world I'm going to hang this. (laughs) My brother went to a birthday party when he was about five and had given a game to his friend that he thought was a a fun game to play. And it was, no, I'm getting this story backwards. His friend gave him a game. his birthday and when my little brother thanked him for the game the friend said oh it's nothing he says just an old game i got for christmas i didn't like it (laughs) my husband lars and i better tell you that his name is l-a-r-s that's a hopelessly difficult name for most people unless they're scandinavian in background but his first name is lars rhymes with stars his last name is gren g-r-e-n and if you call him Mr. Elliot by mistake, well, he doesn't mind that at all. He says, I'm Mr. Elliot III. <laughs> anyway, Lars has a friend named Bill who is a terrible joker, and he loves pulling things on Lars. And one day, Lars had bought a necktie for a birthday present for a friend of his, but he was in a big hurry, and he happened to be at Bill's house, and so he handed this tie, which was in a box, to Bill's wife, and he said, do me a favor, wrap this up, For a birthday gift so she did he took the tie to the birthday party or whatever it was and to his utter discomfiture and astonishment when his friend opened the box there on the top of the tie was a christmas tag with merry christmas to lars (laughs) from john There was no way he would ever be able to convince John that it was Bill's doing and not his. (laughs) A gift is an offering, isn't it? And we all receive gifts that we really don't have any use for, we don't particularly like, but we can generally assume that the people who give it to us have given us something which they like, because normally we don't give people gifts which we ourselves would not like you know do unto others as you would have them do unto you and my mother had a way of returning all of our gifts to us and so we all we all learned to give her gifts which we especially liked (laughs) because we figured we'd probably get them back again when you sit down to think about what you're going to give somebody that you love very much the more you love them the more eager you are to please them and to give them something that you're sure they will really love. You want to give them the very best, don't you? And Amy Carmichael, in her story, tells of the death of one of her beloved little babies. She, in those years of raising literally hundreds of children, there was a time when the family numbered 900 children, or 700 children plus 200 workers, she lost many of those babies, and she tells about one particular, particularly beautiful little girl named Indranila. And Indranila was loved by everyone. She was a baby just learning to walk, and whenever she would join a group of children, the children would clap their hands and hug her, and they just, the, the different little cottages around the mission compound would vie for the privilege of having Indranila come to play with these would be children three or four or five years old but they loved to have this little baby come and she had a bright smile for everybody she was lovable and huggable and much more huggable than some of the other children and that little child died and Amy Carmichael wrote a little poem about her dear little hands dear little feet so eager to be walking And then the, I can't remember all of it, but the end of it is, Father, to thee I give my Indranila. Thou will take care of her until that day. That day was capitalized. And the children were just devastated by the death of this baby. And Amma, that was the Indian word for mother, what the children called Amy Carmichael, Amma called the children to her and took them a walk in the garden And there were some flowers in the garden that were not doing very well. She had introduced flowers from many parts of the world, and they weren't all doing very well in that hot South Indian climate. But in the middle of the garden, there was a gorgeous, absolutely perfect lily. And she spoke to them about little children being flowers in God's garden. And she said, "If Jesus were to come into our garden today." which flower would you want to give him? And without any hesitation, the children all rushed to this beautiful lily, and they said, we would give him this. We would give him this one. And so she thought of Indranila as being that very special lily. The little children were learning to love Jesus and learning that if you love him, you give him the very best That you can the more you love him the more you want to give well I thought in this my first talk this morning I would just give you a little bit of background of some of the gifts of my own life the things which I believe are from the father of lights you know it says in the book of James every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the father of lights in whom there is no variableness, neither shadow caused by turning. And I had the very great gift of growing up in a godly home, a home in which Christianity was a a seven-day-a-week business, not a a one-day-a-week thing. And it was shared by both of my parents, both of whom were dedicated to the Lord, and both of whom were highly disciplined people. They believed that the most peaceful home is an orderly home, and so we lived in an orderly home. And it was understood that they made the rules. And if we didn't like the rules, that was unfortunate, but they were, we were going to abide by them as long as we lived in their house. And you can be sure that we said what most children say, I suppose, at some time, rather to their parents, well, when I grow up and have my children, they're not going to have to do this or that or the other thing. And my, I can remember my mother smiling very sweetly and saying, that's just fine when you grow up and you do what you want to do with your children, but as long as you are my child, you're going to do it my way. And uh, I have a friend who told me that they were given choices in their house they were allowed to go to church with or without a spanking. (laughs) We had parents who loved us enough to say no. The book of Proverbs says that the father who does not discipline his son hates him. There's no more pathetic picture of parenthood than the one who allows the child to do anything he wants and have anything he wants, and who, if the child screams loud enough and makes big enough scene, eventually gets what he's screaming and kicking about. That child is being taught to kick and scream, because once he gets rewarded for having done that, then he is being trained. To do it isn't he and when you see a, chi- a a parent who tells the child 19 times to do something that the child is not doing then you can see that here is a parent training the child to disobey I sat in an airport not very long ago and waiting for our luggage to come around in the carousel and the carousel hadn't started moving yet and there was a little two-year-old whose mother was sitting right beside me and the child was climbing onto the carousel Well, of course there's a big sign there do not step on the carousel or something And the mother was saying jennifer come here jennifer don't get up on that jennifer i said don't get on that jennifer you could get hurt come here jennifer jennifer get down jennifer that thing is dangerous jennifer would you come here please would you come here for mommy and on and on and on and so finally the mother gets up With a great sigh, walks over, picks up the child says, Jennifer, come over here and play. Picks her up bodily, carries her over, puts her down. Two seconds, Jennifer's back on the carousel. Jennifer, don't go over there. Jennifer, come back. Jennifer, come here, would you? Jennifer, you might get hurt. It was all I could do to keep my mouth shut and keep from saying (laughs) to that mother, there is another way. (laughs) It's a very simple way. But of course that child is already two and as my mother used to say if you haven't gotten obedience by the time the child is 18 months it's too late now you mothers whose children are 18 months old you still haven't gotten obedience don't despair if your child is four years old don't despair there's a wonderful method just a little switch maybe about 18 inches long you can pick one off the bush in the backyard. You can have one handy in every room, as my mother did. She kept it over the door. <laughs> kept it over the doorpost, the lintel of the door. And you know, people get the idea sometimes when I tell about my childhood that I lived in such a horribly strict family. I had a young a man come up to me after I'd spoken one time, and he said, Wow, he said, am I glad I'm not your brother? And I said... Why? I mean, I was just totally baffled. Well, he said I could never have survived the kind of rigid regimentation and discipline that you had to survive. Well, of course, what I had forgotten to tell about was all the fun and the laughter and the freedom and the peace we had because the home was ordered and we knew where the lines were drawn. We knew what was expected of us and we were therefore secure. The most secure child in the world is a child who knows what is expected and he knows where the line is drawn. And my father used to say, if you shift the line, what do you succeed in doing? Nothing except shifting the battle. Because the battle will be wherever you draw the line. And so as soon as you shift the line, you're going to have the same battle there. You might as well not shift it. Anyway, my mother let us know early that she spoke once. If we had been getting on the carousel, she would have said, get off the carousel only once. And what's next? (laughs) Well, my daughter, who has five children, carries one of those switches in her purse. (laughs) And that's next. So if the child learns that very early, it doesn't get used very much. I remember when the first time my mother took care of my daughter Valerie for one weekend. We had been living in the jungle of Ecuador and we came to the States. And so my mother really didn't know this child very well. And she was just about two. And I had to go away for a weekend. So when I came back, one of the first things my mother said to me was, has this child ever been spanked? And of course, right away I thought, oh dear, she's been a terrible child this weekend. Mother said, no, she's been an absolute angel except for one time when I needed to spank her. And she said, it broke her heart. She said, I just got the impression she must have never been spanked in her life, not because she was being naughty, but because she hadn't had very many spankings, and that was the very reason, because I had been trying to do what my mother had done with us, to teach them soon enough. And I tell you all this because I consider it one of the gifts of my life that I had the kind of parents who loved us enough to make us obey. Because it is much easier for me to believe that when God disciplines me, which he has to do very often, he does it not because he hates me, but for the same reason my parents did it, because they love me. That's what it says in the book of Hebrews. Whom the Lord loves, he rebukes and chastens. And some of you may have been tempted, as all of us have, I guess all of us have been tempted to say, Lord, I don't know why you're doing this to me, whatever it happens to be that's tough right at the moment. And the answer is always the same. The answer to that why is because I love you. Because I love you. God wants to give us the very best because he loves us, just as when we want to choose a birthday present for somebody that we love, we want to give them the very best. But it is a hard lesson, isn't it? It's one that takes us a lifetime to learn. Here I am at the age of 61. I still have a long way to go. And God has been working on me all my life because he wants to shape me into the image of his son. And if we are going to shape an image, it takes a hammer a hammer, and a chisel and a file. And some of God's dealings are hammer blows, and some of them are the chips of a chisel, and some of them, most of them, are just that filing away, To get the rough corners off. That irritating thing in your life, that irritating person that just grates on you and rubs you the wrong way. God's file. It is a demonstration of love because God will not settle for willfulness and disobedience and pride because it's the route to destruction. And every good parent wants to teach the child to be a good person, a good boy, a good girl, a good man, a good woman, because it's the route to peace, not to destruction. And I have a very wise friend named Barb. Barb lives in Tucson, Arizona, and their house is right on the edge of the desert. And she is a very wise mother. I've watched her. With her children, and Lars and I had breakfast with her one day. We invited her to the motel where we were staying for breakfast, and to my dismay, she came in with her three-year-old child. And I thought, we really wanted to have conversation with Barb, but it is absolutely impossible to have conversation with a mother who has her three-year-old child with her, 99 times out of a hundred. Well, this was the hundredth time because we had no problems at all. Barb had brought along some toys, some crayons, some books. And little Katie was perfectly behaved during the meal. When the meal was over and the adult conversation began, there wasn't anything else to do, Barb took out of her purse these things, and Katie amused herself for a while. Well, when she'd finished amusing herself, she then dived into her mother's purse and pulled out a black felt marker. And her mother, with just the sweetest, calmest way, just turned to Katie and she said, Katie, dear, that is not a choice. These are choices. And she took out a few more things from her purse. And so I said, I commented at the end of this meal how beautifully behaved this child was. And I said, tell me, how did you do it, Barb? So she told me this one story just as an example. I said, give me an example. She said, because they live on the edge of the desert, it's pretty dangerous. There are Gila monsters and scorpions and snakes and all kinds of things in that desert. And so the children have to learn where they can play. And she took Katie, she decided that when Katie was two, this was the time to teach the child where she could play and where she could not play when mama was not watching. Up till that point, she had more or less watched her every second. So she said, I just set aside a day. I scheduled a day. This is the day I'm going to teach that lesson. And I took a lawn chair out in the backyard, and I took Katie out in the backyard, and we walked around the borders, and I said, now, Katie, you you may play here, but you may not play here. And she made it very plain, made sure that the child understood it, where she could play and where she could not play. And now she said, Katie, if you play here, I am going to spank you. Do you understand? Yes, mommy. So mommy goes and sits down with her book, prepared to spend the whole morning, would do whatever is necessary. And of course, Katie plays quietly for about three and a half minutes. And the next thing she, you know, she is over the line. They always join the battle at the line, right? She's over the line. Barb does not scream at her. She doesn't jump up in anger. She quietly gets out of her chair. She goes over. She said, excuse me, no, she didn't get out of her chair. She said, Katie, come here, please. Well, Katie had already learned that lesson, which the little girl in the luggage carousel had not learned. Katie came. Barb took her on her lap. And she said, Katie, I see that you have chosen a spanking. And she proceeded to administer that spanking. And, of course, Katie cried, and Barb cuddled her and loved her, and she said, I spanked you because I love you. Now, does any child believe that? (laughs) Never. Did your mother and father ever say to you, this hurts me worse than it hurts you? (laughs) And did you believe that? Not for a second. But when you become that mother, you know what your mother was talking about. And so she hugged her and she cuddled her and she said, I do love you, Katie. Now we're going to go along that line again. And they did it again. And I don't know how many times Katie chose the spanking, but I don't think it was more than two. That lesson was learned. God will go to any lengths. To bring you and me into order under obedience but we still have the freedom of will to choose don't we we can never make a child choose the good we can do all kinds of things to make it easier for him to do the good than the bad and that's what a mother and a father are here for but we cannot force the will to do the good So I thank God for that gift of my life, of a home where love was the other side of obedience. Obedience was the other side of love because that has helped me in my spiritual life. The second thing that I'm very grateful for, and I could go on for about 12 things. I'm not going to do that this morning. But I've tried to think of some of the outstanding lessons which have helped me so much in learning to walk with God. And that was surrender. The lesson of surrender is a primary lesson for every Christian. You have to teach your child to give in, to give up, to give out. This child is born totally selfish, and the job of the parent is to break down that selfishness and to teach that child to think about somebody else for a change instead of himself. He has to give in to his mother's orders or his father's, he has to give up his toys when his brother or sister wants to play with them, and he has to give out to other people. I can remember hearing my four-year-old grandson say to my two-year-old granddaughter, Elizabeth, you may play with these cars, but you may not play with my equipment. He was crazy about heavy, earth-moving equipment, and he had backhoes and diesel tractors and all kinds of things, toys, and he was willing to share certain ones, but not all of them. And I don't think his mother made him share all of them. I don't think it's necessary to make the child share everything when some toys are appropriate for a younger child and some are not. We won't get into that. But I want to read you a passage from 2 Corinthians 4, which to me is is of the essence of the message of the cross. That's a nice sound, all those Bibles. When Lars and I walked into the restaurant in the hotel this morning, we saw just a whole crowd of very beautiful, very well-dressed black ladies. And I thought, now, I wonder if any of them could be going to the conference at Moody. And we didn't know, but we happened to be sitting near the cashier, and we noticed one after another lining up to pay her bill, and I saw so many great big old Bibles. And so finally Lars got up and asked them where they were going, and they said, well, they were going to Moody. So it's nice to see you with Bibles. Verse 11, Second Corinthians 4, says, continually while still alive, We are being surrendered into the hands of death for Jesus' sake. Now, can you imagine giving a verse like that to somebody who really didn't know the Lord and was asking you what Christianity was all about? You wouldn't get a whole lot of recruits, would you? There's not going to be a stampede to follow someone who dishes out that kind of statement. But what is the symbol of our faith? The symbol of the Christian faith is a cross, a symbol of sacrifice. Jesus, when he stretched out his arms on the cross, allowed what the Bible calls Wicked men to drive nails through the hands that had made the universe. Did he have to do that? Did he have to do that? Well, in one sense, the answer is yes, because he loved us. Because God is love, and he cannot do anything that doesn't come out of love. And anything at all which love requires, God has to do. Because that's what he's made of. He surrendered himself into the hands of finite, foolish, sinful men. For you and me. That's why we're here. Christians are not perfect. They're just forgiven. That's what we are, a bunch of forgiven sinners. But we could not have been forgiven if he had not surrendered himself. And it says in Philippians 2, he was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So if you and I are going to follow him, as the Apostle Paul did, and the Apostle Paul is the one writing these words that I just read to you, We, too, have to be surrendered into the hands of death. Now, this is powerful stuff. This is pretty profound theology. And I'm not a theologian, and I don't claim to be a theologian, and you didn't come here for a theological lecture this morning. But there isn't any way we can talk about Christianity at all without talking about theology, because theology is the study of God, isn't it? and among the gifts of my life are the lesson of surrender is the lesson of surrender which particularly came to me with great power as a small child a young missionary woman who was on her way to China and was a graduate of Moody Bible Institute stayed in our home her name was Betty Scott I remember rather dimly, her being there. I suppose I was four or five years old. She went to China. She married another graduate of Moody Bible Institute, John Stamm. And John and Betty Stamm were captured by Chinese communists. They were stripped nearly naked, marched through the streets of a Chinese village. And Betty was forced to watch while they put John's head on the chopping block and chopped it off. And then Betty Scott Stamm herself knelt at the chopping block and they chopped hers off. Now you can imagine as a little child, I think I was eight or nine, when my father brought home the newspaper with that story, this lady had been right there in our living room. Why did that happen? Well, because of wicked men. And the God who had allowed his own son to be nailed to a cross sometimes allows things like that to happen, terrible things. But John and Betty Stamm, before they ever went to China, I'm sure here at Moody Bible Institute, perhaps long before they ever came here, they had surrendered their lives to Jesus Christ and they said Lord anything you say I'll take it I am yours all the rights are yours do anything you want with me and it was a few years after that news story that I came across a prayer that Betty Scott Stamm had written which I copied into my Bible and which has been a prayer of my own life These were Betty Scott Stam's words. Lord, I give up all my own plans and purposes, all my own desires and hopes, and accept thy will for my life. I give myself, my life, my all, utterly to thee, to be thine forever. Fill me with thy Holy Spirit. Use me as thou wilt. Send me where thou wilt. Work out thy whole will in my life at any cost now and forever surrender is a tremendous paradox and i want you to go back to that 11th verse in second corinthians 4 paul explains why we are being surrendered into the hands of death for jesus sake so that what so that the life of Jesus may be revealed in this mortal body of ours. The life of Jesus was revealed to me in an unforgettable and an absolutely permanent way because of the death, the literal physical death of Betty Scott Stamp. I began then at the age of eight to have an inkling of what discipleship means, what sacrifice means, what it means to follow Jesus Christ. And When I was 12 years old and prayed that prayer and said, Lord, you can have my life and you can do anything you want with it, with it at any cost, it was because that lesson had been borne home to me, not only by the life of Betty Scott Stam, but by the lives of many other missionaries that I knew about through books and the stories of my parents who had also surrendered themselves to death. Now, I'm looking at a room full of women this morning, close to 2,000 of you, I guess, and it's very unlikely, I suppose, that anybody here is going to have his head, her head chopped off. It's not too likely that you're going to be speared to death, as my husband Jim Elliott was. But Paul was not talking to people who were going to have dramatic martyrs deaths necessarily paul was just saying we all of us are being surrendered into the hands of death for jesus sake so that the life of jesus may be revealed in this mortal body now how does that work in ordinary everyday down to earth humdrum monday tuesday wednesday thursday friday saturday life how does it work this principle of surrender well let me give you the simplest most elementary kind of an example of a lesson that my daughter told me about just very recently they didn't have enough cookies to go around somehow or other there were they were one cookie short on the plate and the children had helped themselves until there was one cookie left and two children and they sat Christiana who was four at that point, and Elizabeth, who was six, looking at that cookie. Now, of course, it would have been very easy for Valerie to cut to break it in half and give them each a half of the cookie. Is that what you would have done? But she saw in this a golden opportunity to teach a deep spiritual lesson. Now, she did not say, now, girls, we're going to have a deep spiritual lesson. But she said, well, who's going to eat that cookie? And the two girls looked at each other, looked at their mother, looked at the cookie, looked at each other, looked at their mother, looked at the cookie. So Elizabeth, six-year-old, she said, well, I guess I'm supposed to say that Christiana can have it because I'm the oldest. (laughs) Val didn't say anything. And they sat there, and the two girls looked at the cookie and looked at each other and looked at their mother. And Val said, suddenly, Christiana's face lit up with the most obvious expression of joy. And she said, Elizabeth, you have the cookie. The paradox of this seemingly terrible principle of surrender and discipline What is it for? Paul says we are surrendered into the hands of death, not in order that we might be dead, but in order that the life also of Jesus might be shown, made manifest, seen, might be obvious, visible in us. Now, I don't know how you feel about the spirituality of a four-year-old, but I really believe with all my heart that God was dealing with that little child. And I don't have any doubt that when God dealt with Christiana in that deep spiritual principle that was way beyond her imagination at that point, he was also dealing in the heart of Elizabeth. Elizabeth could not help but notice the joy on her sister's face. Who was the happier? Elizabeth got to eat the cookie. But what did Jesus say? It is more blessed to give than to receive. Do you believe that? Do you live that always in every way? Are you willing to be surrendered into the hands of death if it means that the life of Jesus will be made manifest in you? Now, Betty Scott Stam was dead, but her very death has been the means of life for, I am sure, tens of thousands of people. I meet people all over the world that remember the story if they're as old as I am. Surrender is a tremendous principle. Another very obvious example of the joy that is, that is brought out of surrender is marriage. When I fell in love with Jim Elliot, there was one thing above everything else that I wanted. I wanted to give myself to that man, all of me. Surrender, why? Because I loved him. And unless a bride is prepared when she walks down that aisle to give up everything, herself, her body, her name, her parents, her home, her background, maybe her geography. She may have to move someplace else. It's not really a marriage, is it? I hear about these modern contracts, and I think, what a travesty of the notion of marriage in God's mind. And God tells us that we are the bride of Christ. That's why we surrender. Christ is the bridegroom. We give ourselves unconditionally, totally, and forever. And the third lesson that I'd like to mention from my life is from verse 15 in that same chapter. And here is a phrase that will blow your mind. It is for your sake that all things are ordered. I'm reading from the New English Bible, so you, many of you have different translations. But this one says, verse 15 says, Indeed, it is for your sake that all things are ordered, so that as the abounding grace of God is shared by more and more, the greater may be the chorus of thanksgiving that ascends to the glory of God. Is it possible to believe that it is for your sake that everything in your life has been ordered? And I can just hear you saying, now, wait a minute. You don't know my story. You had a wonderful Christian background. You had marvelous Christian parents who really loved you. I didn't have a Christian background. I didn't have Christian parents. I had parents who abused me. Maybe you didn't have any parents at all. Is Elizabeth Elliot going to stand up there and try to tell me that that was for my sake, that that had anything to do with order as God looks at it? And ladies, Elizabeth Elliot is going to stand here and tell you yes that is what i'm saying where did i get it straight out of this book paul doesn't say it is for your sake that all the good things in your life are ordered he doesn't say it is for your sake that everything that happens that you planned is ordered it says it is for your sake that all things are ordered and that's not the only verse you can't I can hear somebody saying, well, you can't just pick one verse out of the Scripture and make a whole life's philosophy out of it. Well, but there are a lot of other verses. You know Romans 8.28. In Philip's translation, Romans 8.28 says, everything that happens fits into a pattern for good. Everything. 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 It says in the Psalm, Psalm 119, all things serve thee. Speaking of God, everything that happens down here on earth is serving in some mysterious way God's purposes. Now, I can look back and thank God without any difficulty for my heritage, my background, my home life, my parents, my brothers and sisters, my education. The privileges that I had were tremendous. And don't you think for a moment that it doesn't make me tremble to think that I'm going to have to stand alongside people who have not had those privileges. I worked with three tribes of Indians in the jungles of Ecuador. One of those tribes had never seen a stranger, let alone a white person. They had never seen a stranger of any color whatever. They had never heard the gospel. They had never heard the name of Jesus. Someday I'm going to stand beside some of those people. And God is going to say to me, To whomsoever much is given, of him shall much be required. But you now have the privilege of coming to a place like this with a group of Christian women and learning some things which maybe are new. But you can look back and say, somehow, Lord, you're going to transform all those things that looked so disastrous. There are a great many things, as we said earlier, in the way a parent treats his child, which do not fit the child's idea of a way, the way a parent is supposed to show that he loves him. If you love me, you give me five ice cream cones if I want them. If you love me, you don't, won't make me go to bed when there's still fun things going on in the house. If you love me, you won't make me eat spinach. If you love me, you won't do this or that. If you love me, you'd give me this or that. And who talks like that? Well, nobody but us when we're talking to God. Lord, if you really love me, you will answer this prayer the way I want to see it answered. Now, before supper tonight, But it says here that everything is for your sake. And that is a lesson which once you get a hold of, dear women, once you sink your spiritual teeth into, it is going to change your life. Because nothing can separate us from the love of God. Neither what happens today nor what happens tomorrow, neither life nor death nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor anything else in all of creation, Paul says, can separate us from the love of God. When did he start loving you? When you became a Christian? When you got your life sorted out? When you started being a good girl? We'd be in big trouble, wouldn't we? If God waited till we started being a good girl, may I see the hands of the good girls here this morning? (laughs) We'd be in terrible trouble. When did he start loving you and me? Before the foundation of the world. The Lamb of God was slain before the foundation of the world. And he has never stopped. And he has never done anything to you. He has never allowed anybody else to do anything to you. And people have done terrible things to all of us. He has never allowed one of those single things to happen, which he, because of his power and his love, is not capable of transforming for your good. Now, can you understand that? I can't. That's way beyond me. But I believe it because God said it. God said it. Jesus did it. I believe it. That settles it. I cannot understand that. There is a deep mystery in the fact that God, out of his love, gave us the freedom to choose to love him, which also meant that we had the freedom to choose not to love him. Did you ever think about that? Imagine Almighty God who who made all the stars and the galaxies and the moon and the sun and the tides and the winds who do exactly what he says. We live on the ocean. I watch those tides come up and go down twice a day at exactly the minute That's on the tide chart that I have on my desk. Precisely at the minute, they never disobey God. God could have made a bunch of automatons or robots who would also love Him because we were programmed to love Him, but that's not what He did. He made us with the power to choose to shake our fists in His face and to defy Him. Isn't that incredible? To me, that is one of the most staggering facts about the nature of God because he wanted me to choose to love him. And everything that happens in my life, because he loves me and because he has infinite power, he can transform into good. Where, what does it say in Romans eight twenty-eight? To those who love God. You can still defy him, and your life is going to be a mess. But if you want to choose to love him, then you will see how things are beginning to fit into a pattern for good. You're not going to see it all. Don't imagine for a moment that God's going to show you the whole pattern. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttles cease to fly will God unfold the pattern and explain the reason why. Three lessons from my life, which I would hope will be lessons that you can see working out in your own. Number one, love and obedience. Number two, surrender. Number three, for your sake, all things are ordered. God bless you.